Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, uh, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 17th, 2021. This is episode 2,895. 2,895 episodes of the Survival Podcast have thus far occurred. And today, since it's Thursday, it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a really great lineup. I've got some new council members, some we haven't heard a lot from recently, some that we hear from all the time. If you are an expert council member and you don't hear your name and you're like, hey, I sent that jerk stuff this week. Well, when I shook the piker tree a couple weeks ago, a lot of uh, a lot of the pikers started to throw material in. And uh, some of our really reliable people, uh, like Dr. Ken Berry, like, sent me an avalanche of new stuff, right? Like, so uh, I just am pretty good on content right now, so I I try to keep at least, you know, half of the next week's in reserve. Uh, and right now I'm doing a little better than that. So uh, if you don't hear your segment, unless you heard from me, there's nothing wrong with it. Anyway, before uh, we, uh, we, we, we get into the main show, why don't I tell you what we're going to cover, give you a little outline. Darby Simpson heard my piece this week on Miyagi Mornings, which if you didn't watch the video, will be out in tomorrow's recap episode, on grass-fed beef. And I really focused more on, well, how do you fix the problem if you have tough beef? Like, what are ways to tenderize it? What are ways to cook it, etc.? And uh, Darby has some thoughts on the management uh, side of what can actually result in beef that's not quite to the flavor you're looking for and not quite to the tenderness you're looking for, for you know, relative to the cuts we're talking here. Obviously, a, a brisket's never going to be as tender as a ribeye, but a tough ribeye, a thing should not be, right? So Darby's going to talk about that because he's much more, it's more in his wheelhouse of the management side uh, of grass-fed cattle. Amy Ding is going to talk about something really, really critical, I think, in, in, in the learning of children. We're coming at this from a homeschool standpoint, but I think this applies to all children. And the direction we as parents give them, no matter how we choose to educate them. How do you move a child from directed learning to self-directed learning? How, how do you give freedom and say, okay, now here, go do the thing. Go figure it out. And when they, when they want to do it, and they're capable of doing it, but they fail to do it, how do we use consequences and situation to steer them so that we don't just constantly hold them back into directed learning? How do we push through the transition over time. I'll give some thoughts on that one as well because it's something I've had to deal with as we have had my grandson here for homeschooling. And he's a very capable young man. He's also strong-willed, and at times he's intentionally a little turd. And that's part of being a kid. And so I'll give you some of my thoughts after we hear Amy. Sean Mills has a rapid-fire uh, session on solar and energy and choosing a brand and a product and all kinds of cool stuff from that sector. Uh, we did hear from Sean last week. We hadn't heard from him in a while. That's why I chose to double up on his stuff. Jeff Lawton talks about judging soil condition and the soil needs of management based on a specific weed. We, we, I've said this. Jeff said this. Nick Ferguson said this. Ben Falk has said this. Paul Wheaton has said this. Like everybody in the world of permaculture has said this. Sepp Holzer has said this. When you look at a field that is in disrepair, it, it, it's not it's not optimum. And you see weeds, you can look at the types of the weeds, and they will tell you the story of the problem in the field because they are specifically nature's reparative mechanisms. But when you have a really difficult to deal with and manage weed like field bindweed, 
What is that telling us about Pastor Jeff Lawton? We'll weigh in on that. Speaking of permaculture and Nick Ferguson, Nick Ferguson is going to talk about black mulberry. You know that Nick and I are huge on white milk mulberry for fruit production as a fodder crop, as a biomass crop. It's just fantastic. But some people live where white mulberry just dies in the winter. Like the, there is a limit to you know its its zone of, of capability of survival. Well, Nick talks about black mulberry today because we have somebody that lives in one of those northern zones and has black mulberry and wants to propagate more. And, and you know, is it as good? Does it have limitations? What's up with black mulberry? Then we have a grab bag of financial and investing questions from the man himself, John Pugliano. So we'll have John on as well today. And then I have a quote of the day for you that I will give you commentary on. I think this is a very deep one. And I think it's one that people scratch over way too fast, and we need to think a little bit about more about its true implications. I think it sounds so obvious, and it is so short, that people are like, yeah, okay, and then just move along. And don't really think about how far-reaching this is. It was by one of our founders, Ben Franklin. He said one time, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Think about that as we go through this episode, and when we come to the end, I will give you my thoughts on that quote. With that, let's go ahead and jump right on into it with Darby Simpson with Management for Meat Quality and Grass-Fed Beef. Hey there, everybody. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life back to answer another expert counsel question. And this week, the question comes in from Jack Spearco. That's right. I've actually got a question from Jack about what can make beef too tough when it's grass-fed. Jack actually tackled this on a recent Miyagi Mornings episode, and he asked me to uh, you know, contribute my thoughts on what could cause this from a production and management side. Uh, and there are a number of things that can contribute to it, uh, but also what can contribute to it is our, our cooking and methodology. And I, I like to cook, and I've retailed a lot of steaks over the past 12 years. So it's something I'm, I'm used to explaining to people uh, on you know how not to ruin a perfectly good 100% grass-fed steak. Um, the first thing we need to understand is you know what we're used to today as Americans when it comes to eating beef that is traditionally grain finished versus 100% grass-fed. You know, cows being a ruminant really should not eat grain. It's not healthy for them and and. Frankly, it's not healthy for us either. Uh, but that grain does do one thing really well, all those carbohydrates. They create a lot of marbling. And that marbling creates delicious, juicy fat. And so much fat, in fact, that it's kind of hard to, to dry out conventionally raised meat, whether that be beef or pork or poultry. Something we have to tell our customers all the time is don't overcook it. It's going to cook faster. It doesn't have a bunch of superfluous water weight and fat in it that uh, you're just going to be able to you know, cook it till your heart's desire and it's still going to be juicy. That's not how it works. Um, you know, 100% grass-fed beef is going to be leaner, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be well marbled and still delicious, but we do have to tweak a few things. Uh, so let's get into it. What are some contributing factors? Uh, the first thing that Jack mentioned right out of the gate, aging. Something else he talked about, overcooking. Um, you know, something he, he hinted at and didn't get into too deeply, proper thickness. 
and then, of course, if it has poor marbling, that all comes from the production side, from the farmer side. Uh, these are all things we need to consider. And let's break each one of these down. The first one, aging. You know that what you want to look for is a, a beef that's been aged a minimum of 14 days. This dry aging process contributes, generally speaking, most people notice the flavor. It, it contributes to a really delicious, intense flavor. But it also helps to create tenderness when properly done. Um, so minimum of 14 days. Now, why would a processor not dry age 14 days? Well, it takes a lot of space to hang a beef for 14 days. And it takes mechanical cooling. And you have to maintain the environment just right to get the dry aging process to work the way it should. You can ruin the beef Basically, this all boils down to it takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And some butchers are going to take shortcuts. Fortunately, ours does not. Uh, in addition to that, we can dry age our, our meat if we so desire in the fridge at home for another five to seven days if we want it to be a bit more tender and add some additional flavor. Cooking. Do not overcook 100% grass-fed meat or pastured poultry or pastured pork. This is particularly important with beef. It is especially important when it comes to steaks. You've got to shoot for medium rare. Sear the outside. The inside should be hot pink. Um, if you overcook a 100% grass-fed steak, I don't care how well marbled it is, it's going to go from delicious and juicy and tender to rubber tire in just a couple of minutes. Okay, I've given this spiel literally thousands of times. Um, it can happen to the best of us, but if we overcook, that's a big error. Thickness. I have a lot, you know, of experience with customers getting steaks. They want to get as many packages as they can, and they get them made a half inch thick, and it's just too thin. Really, a minimum is three quarters of an inch. Uh, one inch is better, and if we're talking about a boneless, like a fillet, that's probably an inch and a half, you know, so making sure it's the proper thickness. Now, poor marbling. The buck stops with the farmer. You know, when I first started raising 100% grass-fed beef, frankly, it wasn't very good. My pasture was not great. My management skills weren't up to par, and I was using the wrong genetics. I, I was using some, like, half beef, half dairy genetics that I got cheaply from a friend of mine. It just didn't pan out, and thank God for the people that stuck with me, right? Because those, those first couple of years, it, it just wasn't very good. It's fine for ground beef and for a few specific cuts, but when we're talking about roast and steaks, it just doesn't work. Um, so having a, a good grazing practice, rotational grazing where the cows are eating everything, having that, that adolescent grass that, that Jack talked about, that's what we're looking for. We don't want, you know, baby grass. We don't want geriatric grass. We want our grass to be in that really high growth adolescent stage. That's where the cows get the most out of it. And not just having grass. We can't just think about grass. We've got to have forbs and legumes out there, particularly clovers and alfalfas. We've got to have protein for our cows. The grasses are more carbohydrates. We've got to have proteins, okay? Speaking of carbohydrates, finishing at the proper time of year is so key. Now, we do finish some beef in the summer. We've always got some overachievers that, that, that finish out just fine. But by and large, 80% of my beef I finish in the fall. Why? It gets cool here in central Indiana. Those cool fall nights, oh, all that fescue turns into high carbohydrate. And what does high carbohydrate do? It 
creates flash marbling. Marbling leads to juicy, tender, delicious beef. This all gets back to the practices that your farmer is using when he's raising his beef. And it takes a long time to get there. If you're working with a new farmer, extend some grace. This takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of land, and a lot of management to get to a point where you can be a guy like me that's finishing 20 to 24 cows a year. And we're using over 50 acres. It just takes a lot and a long time to get there. But it can be done, and it can be delicious. Now, something else is the age of the animal. We want that animal to be done. It's very difficult. I mean, very difficult to really get a 100% grass-fed beef animal done in less than 22 to 24 months, and typically it's going to be closer to 30 months. If somebody is finishing cows faster than that, they're a rock star. Um, it just is what it is. It takes that long We want them to be on mama for 9 to 12 months, so they're getting that, that high milk fat. Again, this is growth, flash marbling. If you're feeding hay in the winter, we've got to have very high-quality hay, again, with lots of legumes in it. It can't just be grass. It's got to have the protein for the growth. We've got to keep our daily weight gains up, or we can end up with an inferior product. Jack talked specifically about that ribeye. A ribeye is the fattiest cut of steak in the cow. And frankly, it's my favorite. I love them. I'll take a ribeye all day long over a T-bone or anything else. If that's not well marbled, that's a management practice issue. It could be some of these other issues, and it probably is. It's probably a combination. But if you don't see marbling in the ribeye and in the T-bone, that's a management issue. Uh, now, one note I do want to mention, people talk about the quote-unquote gamey flavor of grass-finished beef. It is true. It does have a different flavor. It's basically what beef should taste like. And when you look at that beef, it should be a deep red, almost a purple color. People look at our beef and they're like, oh, my gosh. It looks like you injected a purple uh, food coloring into it. No, that's that's how it comes out when it's properly raised. But it's got to have that marbling. And there is a little bit of a learning curve on how to cook. Particularly, you're talking about something like a rolled rump roast that's super lean. Again, you can't overcook it. you got to go for medium rare, maybe just a tick past medium rare. And use proper cooking methods like Jack talked about so that we don't dry that beef out. It cooks faster No matter how well marbled it is, it's just the way it is. So one note, though, on sirloin steaks, that trim fat can be very strong. And that's one thing I tell customers to avoid because it, it, it does have a concentrated flavor. I don't understand the biology of it, but it is a fact. We still experience it, so I trim that fat off. You know, if there's a particular cut that you find a little too intense, just trim it up so that you'll enjoy it. Well, that's what I've got for you on this one, everybody. I hope you found it helpful. Check out all of our resources at grassfedlife.co, and feel free to shoot your questions to me, Darby, at grassfedlife.co. As always, have a wonderful weekend. All right, next up, uh, Amy Dingman, uh, one of our newest expert council members uh, on homeschooling and taking care of kids and education in general, child rearing. Uh, we have a question. It's a great question on transitioning from directed learning to self-directed learning. I'll let Amy take it away from here.
Hey, everybody, this is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website here to answer another question about homeschooling. This question comes from Lori. Lori asks, can you give some tips for transitioning from the parent teaching the child to the child learning independently? Should there be consequences if the child does not do the schoolwork? Background, I have been homeschooling for a few years now, and my almost 10-year-old is capable and wants to work independently. However, when I allow her to do the learning that way, she frequently does not complete items or stalls even when she picks the topics to learn about. The result is that we both get frustrated and we end up doing less learning in general. Thanks, Lori. Hey, Lori, when it comes to the topic of independence in learning, I think there are really four different ways it can go. You can have kids who are ready to learn independently and they just absolutely rock at it. You have kids who just aren't ready. You have kids who are ready, but they don't wanna. And then you have kids who want to, but they still need some guidance about how to make that happen. I think sometimes as parents, as homeschooling parents especially, we see independence as this all or nothing thing. Either our kids are totally dependent on us for the learning or they're not looking to us at all for the learning. But independence can be overwhelming for some kids, and sometimes you just have to grant it in little bits. This is all going to depend on the kid. I had one kid who was like, cut me loose, I've got this. And I had another kid who took a lot longer to get comfortable with bits of independence and then complete independence in their learning. And then eventually they got to the point they were like, leave me alone, I got this. So kids, or really human beings in general, can be really different in their approach to and their comfort level with independence. One thing to look at with your 10-year-old is what can your 10-year-old do independently that maybe isn't school stuff? Can she do the dishes? Can she feed the dog or the chickens? Can she do her chores? Can she take care of her siblings? Can she make her own lunch? Is she able to take on other things independently or is school the only issue? Now, I'm not sure how independent you're talking here. I'm not sure if you mean I'm not going to stand over your shoulder while you do this math worksheet or if you're talking some big project she wants to take on and then doesn't complete. But if independence is a struggle, here are a few things that I would suggest. Number one, I would say start the independence in one subject or with one project and then reevaluate after a certain period of time. And by this, I mean, have a discussion with her about why it's not working. Help her to be able to put into words why it's not working or why she's struggling. Is she losing interest? Is she struggling because she doesn't know how to ask for help? Will she admit that she's just being lazy or irresponsible. Now, don't laugh. I've heard kids say it, and it's actually pretty cool when they can say that because it means they've reached a certain maturity where they can look at what they're doing and go, yeah, I'm, I'm just totally being lazy here. So have a discussion with her about that. Number two, I would sit down and talk with her about goals. Have her tell you what it is that she thinks she should be accomplishing or be able to do independently at this point, and then compare that to what you think she should be accomplishing or being able to do independently at this point. And make sure you're both being realistic about that. The third thing I would do is look at how your schooling is structured. Whenever we had glitches of things that just didn't work for us anymore or places where we really struggled, sometimes it was a clue for us to look at how we had things set up. Because the really great thing about homeschooling is that you have the ability to be fluid and flexible. And when things don't work anymore, you can change. Because what works for a six-year-old doesn't work for a 10-year-old doesn't work for a 13-year-old. 
The frustrating part of that is you have to figure out how to make the change. I know a mom who struggled with independence in her child when it came to math. And what really was the issue after they had a discussion is that the kid was thinking, why do I have to do this page of 20 math problems when I can prove to you that I can do this math in 10 problems? And so they actually came up with an agreement. If you can do your math lesson for the day independently and you can do 10 math problems and they're all correct, then that's all you have to do with math. You you don't have to do the other 10 problems for the day. And that's all it took for them to be like, okay, we got this. So have a discussion, figure out if the way you're doing the schooling is still working for you. When it comes to consequences, the second part of your question, I'm a big proponent of consequences need to be real life consequences for them to make any difference at all. It can't just be some random thing that you attach because you're frustrated. I think that's when consequences really get us into trouble as parents. It's best when real life hands them the consequence without us even really having to do anything. But sometimes that's hard as a homeschooling parent. In public school, you would say, if you don't do well on the test, you're going to fail. That's kind of a different thing in homeschool. You know, you, you do poorly on the test. What does that really mean in homeschooling? It's a different situation. You know your house best. And I think consequences are great teachers, especially if what you figure out is that your child isn't following through just because they don't want to follow through. That's a situation that needs to be dealt with. I have some friends who enacted a work before play culture in their house. That was for the adults and the kids. And play for the kids, you know, the play that they were wanting to get to generally required Wi-Fi. And the Wi-Fi password was not given to the kids until their work was done for the day. So you have lots of options of how you can kind of enact these consequences that make sense. But flaking out and lack of follow through happens to everyone, adults in Included, right? But in our household, when we had hardcore flaking out or not getting work done long term, I sat down with my boys and we had a conversation. And it was it was just a very chill conversation. I didn't get mad, I didn't yell because sometimes when that happens, they just stop listening. And and here was a conversation. I would say, Look, you have to be educated, but you don't have to be educated by me. You can be educated at home. Your other option is the public school that's nine miles away. If you want to continue to be homeschooled, here's what needs to happen because it needs to work for us as a team. If it doesn't work for both of us, it doesn't work for either of us. So here's what needs to happen. You decide what you want to do. And then you set the ground rules, whatever you want those to be. And and that's what you do. Now, do I think a 10-year-old is old enough to hear those words? I do, but you know your kids. And I had to have that conversation a few times with my kids, especially between the ages of 9 and 11, because now having done this whole homeschool thing, I would say the ages of 9 to 11 were probably the most difficult years for us. I think giving my kids some sense of, hey, we, we don't have to be schooled this way, and if we want to continue being schooled this way, this is our part of the deal that we have to hold up. I think that was really important for them to know that they were involved in it. So that may be a discussion that you need to have with your daughter at some point if you figure out the lack of follow through is just because I don't want to follow through. So the thing is the transition from parent teaching the child to the child learning independently, it's not always a smooth one. It starts and it stops. There are bumps in the road, and that's totally normal. Clearly, at some point, your kids need to see you as more of a guide and less of a teacher. And a discussion about why that's important is a good idea, but it's also important to realize that what one kid can handle independently at eight is what another kid takes on at 12. But it's also important to realize that some kids just have a really bad case of the don't want us. 
And in that situation, you might have to enact some consequences for not following through on their work. And the way to know the difference between those two situations is really using that parental sixth sense that we have that comes from watching your kid and also having conversations with that child about independence and follow through. So I hope that was helpful, Lori. If you have other thoughts, you can find my contact information at afarmishkindoflife.com. You can also check out my book, The Homeschool Highway, How to Navigate Your Way Without Getting Carsick. Thank you so much for the question and have an awesome day. I want to kind of talk about how we do this. You're going to hear a lot of similarities, almost dramatic similarities between my philosophy and Amy's. And this is something I developed. Uh, initially, it wasn't really for schooling. It was just for parenting. And boy, I have used Wi-Fi as a tool a lot in my parenting. I haven't had to do it with my grandson and granddaughter yet, uh, but it is a tool that is there. I, I am the one that pays for the router and the service to it, and uh, I am the one with master controls over the password. Um, now, the thing is, they're, they're highly um, internet-enabled learners, right? So we're using internet tools for them to learn, but I also have the ability to, like, oh, lock down what they can actually do on those devices. So I hadn't had to do it yet. But I, very much real-world consequences is where I where I come from with this. So, And I am definitely a work-before-play guy, I and I show and I demonstrate that not by it being a rule for me, but being how I run my life. I run my business from my home. So when I tell my grandson that I have to do my work before I can go screw off and do the things that I want, and my, maybe I take a break here and there and, and hang out with him for a little bit, but I, I do not really quit until my work is done, I'm demonstrating that. I think demonstration, so you're not doing do as I say, not as I do with your children, that does not work. It costs you all sorts of credibility, so that's across the board. When it comes to schoolwork, we have a very simple thing, and it is a work-play relationship. You have almost total freedom. Unless it's something you you know you're specifically not permitted to do because your parents say you can't or is dangerous, you can pretty much do anything you want with the rest of the day once your work for the day is done. And when we did that initially, he's pretty my grandson's pretty predisposed for this, and my granddaughter seems to be as well. We're very early stages with her; she's still in like a preschool age, right? But we are doing out school classes with her. We're getting her in a feel for learning, and I really need to do a video someday of her doing an out school class where she is just giggling and happy and so excited and be like, "This is what learning looks like." Not kids sitting at desks in straight lines. Anyway, I digress. Um, this worked. All through fourth grade. My grandson should be starting fifth grade in September. He started fifth grade in January. That's that's how well it worked. And he was a straight A student. As he entered the fifth grade and the work became a little more challenging, his work level was not the problem. His work quality became the problem. So... What we ended up doing was saying, okay, here's what we're going to do now. We're going to change the rules. It's not just being done. It is the quality of the work. And if you do not have the quality of the work today, then tomorrow when we look at your results, you repeat the work. Then you do the next day's work. And you're not in any hurry because you don't have the freedom at all. And I think that, and, and Amy was alluding to this as well, I do not like to be reactionary with consequences. I like to be proactive where everybody knows the consequence before the failure occurs. And in this, what we're doing also is saying it is we're trying to teach you another skill. When you get to a point where you're really not sure, 
even though you're being on your own and you're having all this freedom to do your learning at your own speed, your own pace, your own way, when you get there, you need to either, since we use Excellus and there are teachers that you can reach out to, you either need to use the tools you have to reach out to them and get help from them, or you need to come to one of us for help. And you need to learn when you've reached a point where you are weak on something and need assistance, how to acquire that assistance. Because what this really comes down to is we're, we're breaking things into two places where we shouldn't. We're saying, how do I teach this child? How do I take this child where their learning is independent of me? And so we're thinking we teach, and we don't realize we're actually, that is a skill in of itself that we're also teaching. And so what I want to do is I want to set up a natural environment. And a natural environment will always result in a child learning how to learn. Always. And it's a combination of sufficient negative consequence, sufficient positive consequence, and sufficient motivation. Those are, if you have those three things, a person of any age will learn. And I'll explain it with a baby. A baby learning how to walk. We think we teach babies how to walk. We do not teach babies how to walk. Life does. We may aid the process a little bit. You know, we hold the fingers up and they grab one of the fingers and we kind of help them walk and maybe we get them a walker or whatever. But in reality, this is how a child learns to walk. They're born, they have very, very limited cognitive, cognitive ability when they're born. We're excited when they focus on something for more than three seconds or when they smile because they farted. Like, that's, that's amazing. Look at what he did, right? He farted and he smiled, right? Like, so he had recognition that he farted and it made him smile. Like, that's amazing. And it is amazing. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying, like, that's what you're dealing with. The mind and the body begin to develop in this child simultaneously because it's called growth. And the child begins to observe what's around it. And there's all these big things and maybe some hairy four-legged things, and they move all around the house at, like, incredible speed. Imagine it must be for a baby in this situation who's beginning to comprehend that's the mommy, that's the daddy, that's the doggy, that's the brother, that's the sister. This is the thing I stick in my mouth. That's the thing that goes blinky-blink. Like, to watch dad or mom walk down a hallway must be like us, if we were to put it in a relative position, watching the freaking flash. You know, maybe in a slowest speed, but still moving beyond human speed, right? Like just, or like, you know, like like an Olympic sprinter on his best day in the 100-meter dash, just walking down the hallway. That's what it looks like to them. I want to be able to move. So the child develops the motivation in their own self. I want to be able to do what, what all these other beings are doing. And it starts doing things like it lifting its head up, and then all of a sudden it's pushing itself up. And then it's it's trying to crawl, but it's just basically dragging itself. And then the muscles are developing, the mind is developing, but the motivation is there. And there's a point where that child literally has the physical capability to walk before he or she does. He hasn't learned the balance component yet. The physical strength is there. Right, And the mental capability to use it is there, but the two things have not come together. It's like, remember when you learned how to ride a bike? There was nothing in you by the time you learned how to ride a bike that made you physically impaired or mentally incapable of riding a bike. It was the coordination of, hey, the bike tilts this way, move your body that way. That's all that was left. That's all that was left was learning how to, you know, turn the wheel a little bit, a little, like it looks like big turns when you're first learning, but it becomes micro turns. You get on a bike, it looks easy, right? You had all the necessary things in you to ride a bike before you could. The child has everything in them to be able to walk before they do. But when they do it wrong, what happens? They fall down. 
Now, fortunately, they're little, so they don't fall very far. We put these big padded things on their butt, so they usually learn really quick, hey, fall backwards and land on the butt, right? And the diaper takes the, the, the shock. But the consequence is, one, falling, and there might be a little discomfort with that, but it's more, well, since I haven't done it right, I can't do what the big things do. I can't do what the mommy does and the daddy does and the doggy does. So the motivation continues to push, and the consequences are actually what does the teaching. I did this, and I made it three steps. Now, they don't even know what the number three is yet, but they know they went further than the last time. So I'll do that again. And I made it four, and this is what I did different. And it's like subconscious adjustments in the mind. And all of a sudden, we ha we're, we're going around the house, and we're like putting padding on anything with a sharp corner because the kid's going to kill himself. And now our goal come, becomes not to teach the child to walk anymore, but to prevent them from killing themselves during that transitional stage by impaling themselves on something like a uh, table end, right? And, and so we think we taught them to, learn, to, to walk. But what taught them to walk was motivation, motivation and consequences. When, when sufficient desire meant sufficient action and sufficient consequences to the incorrect action the child taught themselves. This is all you have to do to teach a child to learn. You create sufficient motivation. These are the things that, and you don't say you get to do X, Y, and Z. You get within the boundaries of what you're comfortable with. You give total freedom at the end of the work day, so to say, just like you have. See, unlike school, we're actually preparing them for the real world. What do you do after work? When you're done with your work for the day, whatever you want to. Now, there may be other obligations you have and all, but you choose what they are and what you obligate yourself. You have complete and total freedom at the end of your day. Give your child the same thing at the end of his or her work day. Right? Maybe there's some chores and things like that, but again, that's part of the work. And then you don't get that until. So now the motivation, right? And then the other side of it, like I said, is instead of saying we're going to try harder With tomorrow's lesson, since we're homeschooling, we don't have to maintain the schedule that the school does. That's one of the true blessings of it. We're redoing this. But I already did it. But you didn't do it sufficiently. So we're going to redo it until you do it well. Because what happens is a cascading error. This is one of the biggest problems that happens in public education. And I'm going long here, but this is so important. Everybody knows the analogy. I shoot a rocket at, let's say I am shooting a gun at a target 25 meters away, and I'm off by a fraction of a millimeter. I still get very close to the bullseye. I shoot a rocket at the moon, and I'm off by a fraction of a millimeter. I'll miss the moon by more than the width of the earth. Well more than the width of the earth. Multiple earths of miss. I won't even be close in space terms. This is what happens in school. When a child does poorly but sufficient to pass, there's a cascading failure through the system because I don't have this foundational knowledge. When I get to this next level of challenge, now I lose more. And every time we advance the child without correcting the loss of the, the, the failure to gain the foundational knowledge, it, they get deeper in a hole. So we pull back and we retool. So what I did with my grandson was we went from speed to quality. It went from you can you can go do whatever you want as soon as you're done to you don't even have to, you're ahead a year. You're ahead a year at this point. You don't have to take a full course load. You can do two courses at a time. But you have to have quality. And that's what's worked for us. And you have to figure out what works for yourself, but the methodology of combining motivation with consequence that's preset not reactionary, 
That is, and that's, you know what that is? That is how effective leaders and managers manage and motivate teams. The same way. You give them so much freedom as long as the quality and the speed are there in what you need done. And they'll follow you to war if you do that for people. And your kids, you should treat them as good as you would treat people that you would want to take to war with you. At least they're your family. All right, with that, let's take another one. This one, uh, a lightning round on solar and energy and brands and choosing stuff and Sean Mills. Hey everybody in TSP land, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com and I've got a little rapid fire session for you today. Uh, so question, are there any quote unquote trusted manufacturers for solar panels, charge controllers, etc.? I'm interested in building a small solar backup system, but don't know how enough about the industry to tell the good products from the jump. Communism is evil. Jake Kettner. I don't know if that was a dig at stuff coming from China or just a general statement. Um, but honestly, Jake, this is a pretty easy one. Uh, only buy panels from companies that have 25 plus year warranties. And outside of that, in my opinion, uh, the purchase channel is probably more important than the name brand. For example, I'd buy anything that Backwood Solar sells, even if I don't buy it from them. Uh, now, U.S. manufacturers of charge controllers, inverters, etc., are all tried and true. Uh, but there isn't any issues with overseas stuff. The great thing about the internet is that just about any product you want to buy, you can find reviews on it. Even a lot of the unbranded Chinese stuff has video breakdown and testing reviews on YouTube these days. Uh, the reality is it's very hard to produce a product that you put in someone's hand that's crap. It costs too much to research, develop, line out supply chains, and manufacture this stuff. Not to mention put it on a container and ship it halfway across the planet, get it through customs, and then through a distribution channel into someone's house to send out crappy products that impact their future. You know, I mean, for me to, for me, if, if I'm setting up a manufacturing facility in China and I want to ship a product to Indiana, it's probably at least a year for me to get through all the processes that I need to get through to get to the place where I can start producing anything. And then, you know, in order to pr produce something that's going to be cost effective on the market, I need to buy a significant amount of material. Uh, invest a significant amount of labor and produce a significant amount of product uh, in order to get it into the hands of a consumer in the United States that's willing to, to pay their money for it. Uh, and, and to do that and have crappy products going out, it's just it's not good business. Um, so, so, again, I'm not endorsing anything from any place. I'm just telling you, any place that's producing a electrical product that they're putting in your hand, if it's UL listed, that's something to look for. Um, I'd probably say you're not going to have a problem with it. I used to swear by midnight uh, charge controllers and magnum inverters just because I never had a single installation where either of those products have failed. However, in the past four years, I've never had any product fail that, that was put in properly. You know, no, no product after proper installation that failed. I've had some ghosts in the machines. I've had some things that needed to be massaged or work around or just a little bit of babying. But that's true of any system I've ever operated on, including nuclear, coal, solar thermal, combined cycle, natural gas, diesel, even utility-scale solar PV systems. Um, no matter what it is, there's going to be a little area, hey, we can't bring unit one up to 80% 
uh, you know, until uh, the tubes get, you know, whatever degrees. I mean, it, there's always something, right? Um, and so, so the idea that every system's going to work without some sort of special local know-how uh, to make it work the most efficiency, efficiently is just wrong. Uh, so I hope that answers your, your question, Jake. Um, I'd focus more on the distribution channel if I'm getting it off of Amazon, if I'm getting it from someone really reliable like Arizona Wind and Solar or Backwoods uh, Solar, uh, if I'm getting it through Alibaba who's got their guarantees, you know, honestly at that point, I'm not too concerned about it. Uh, all right, this one's from Ed. The eight GC2 golf cart batteries in my battery bank have now reached the end of their life. What are my best upgrade options? Well, Ed, back in March, I did do a deep dive into lithium iron phosphate batteries, and I broke down the cost per cycle and I levelized uh, cost, you know, investment cost um, for you know pretty much the four main options. I did not cover. Um, AGM batteries because I think that they're they've got specific applications and home battery banks isn't one of them. I'm not going to rehash all of that here, but suffice to say, if you want more than a decade of life at the cheapest per cycle cost and the most expensive per battery cost, you're going to go lithium iron phosphate. If you want the cheapest upfront cost with the shortest life, put another eight GC2 batteries in. And personally, I'm a big fan of Costco or Sam's for those GC2s. Uh, all right, next one. Question for Sean. Sean, I'm looking for a good source for micro solar for homesteading. Details. I've got a fairly spread out property, so it's kind of expensive for me to get grid power everywhere. I'm interested in distributed solar for small to medium applications like opening doors on chicken coops, running small pumps or bubblers for aquaponics or ponds, etc. Do you have any good sources for learning about that or acquiring quality low voltage hardware? Uh, sort of just searching on Amazon or Google, I really don't know where to look. I am fairly familiar with electrical math, watts, volts, etc., but not specifically with solar. Thanks, Andy. Hey, Andy uh, from Indiana. Um, so volt, volts, <laughs> volts, amps, watts work the same whether it's solar or anything else. So you're you've got a a good base to build off of. Uh, personally, to answer your question, go to builditsolar.com. Spelled just like it sounds, builditsolar.com. Um, they've got a ton of resources, ton of great information and, and examples of projects that people have done. Uh, now, all that being said, it probably makes the most sense to have a centralized solar array close to the house or a main outbuilding that keeps batteries charged up and then have a bunch of small battery operated items where you regularly rotate those batteries. You know, so maybe twice a week or, or whatever, you're taking two battery, two fresh batteries from the charging station out, switching batteries out and whatever. I think that's probably a better option uh, than trying to have a, a bunch of individual solar powered uh, items. Uh, now for a constant use like water pumping, I like Final Raw guys keep it simple, stupid method. Um, you know, you just go uh, panel uh, to controller to device, 12 volt device. Um, you could reach out to whoever owns the solar-powered highway signs. You know, I don't know in your state if it's the DOT or if it's uh, a third-party company. Ask them what they do with the panels that come off signs hit by equipment or cars. Uh, broken solar panels can sometimes be found for free, and they have enough generations for small projects around a homestead. Uh, there is a section on Build It Solar for making your own PV panels, so that might also be worth looking into. Also, check out Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, 
Um, sometimes you can find someone selling, you know, a broken panel. Uh, reach out to menu or not manufacturers, but installers. You know, maybe down in Louisville or up in Indianapolis, uh, or even over in Cincinnati. I think you're actually kind of equally distant from those places, but. Um, reach out to, to solar installers in those areas. See what they do with broken panels. You might be able to, to get your hands on some for cheap or free. Or, hey, what happens if you buy 100 panels and you only put in 99? You know, you're not going to buy more of that same panel. You're going to buy what's available on the market. What do you do with that one extra panel? Might be a way to get one for cheap. Uh, if you do end up with solar all over the property, I'd look to stay 12 volt as the components are the cheapest and easiest to find. Uh, for a system that's only going to be needed during the day, you could get a busted solar panel, a used car battery, and a small MPPT charge controller. You know, buy the buy the controller and the and the wire, and you know the rest of it you can probably get for uh, free. Um, that would provide you 12 volts at probably five or more amps for eight or more hours most days. And heck, if you destroy the battery after a year or so, who cares? You know, go find another one. Pay a guy 15 bucks for a cord charge to get a used battery. Uh, one other thing, Renogy has a good wire sizing tool where you can determine how far you can run wire for a certain voltage and amperage safely. Uh, personally, in this type of application, I would not run a bunch of wires all over my property. Because uh, in order to do it safely, you want to put it in conduit. And once you start buying conduit, particularly at today's prices, you might as well just put more solar in. Uh, so I hope that helps. And uh, if you guys have any follow-up questions, reach out to me at hackmysolar at gmail.com. Thanks. Next up, like like we've said in the intro, and I've said so many times, weeds in a field tell you what reparative mechanisms going on and what that land needs to go into a state of repair versus disrepair. And we have a question for Jeff Lawton on, well, what is bindweed telling us when we see that in our fields? Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And we have a question here about what soil condition is field bindweed, convolvulus arvensis, trying to tell us. Um, this is someone coming in from... Um, Central Oregon, no, Central Montana, USDA Zone 4B with a soil that's 7.7 pH on average, a rainfall of 11 inches. And they're finding it um, very difficult to deal with um, field bindweed. And um, at least they're looking at a way of controlling what they consider to be an incredibly invasive plant. Well, if you look up this plant worldwide, it doesn't take over everywhere. Um, some places it's just recorded as a weed, other places it's a serious invasive, and it will just depend on conditions. Um, it definitely likes to take up uh, roadsides where there's a good light edge along the edge of roads, uh, the edge of fields, and open spaces where trees have been removed. It puts down very deep Roots and it has sort of tubers under the ground which regenerate even after you've done whatever you can at the surface to take out this twining mass mass uh, producer. It's it's a mass builder. It builds mass. It builds lots of biomass. It's incredibly successful at doing it. And until you have built up extra biomass in the soil, particularly tree roots um, that. Um, can build up the carbon layer um, it'll continue to germinate 
So it's, it's actually building up mass and residual mass in root zone and lots and lots of mass above the surface. So adding organic matter or including a lot more trees in your agriculture. Now, they can be beneficial trees to the landscape, beneficial trees to the soil, particularly nitrogen fixers, let's say. So we know that agriculture is highly deficient in trees and where you have soils that are very dependent on having a lot of organic matter, then you're going to get this kind of germination. Good luck. Don't go into too much of a battle. Work out what all these, um, what we call invasives, are trying to tell us and realise they're actually just hard-working immigrants trying to get a job done that we should have done ourselves. So I want to give you a little anecdotal uh, evidence on bindweed. I have an area, There's, it's where my little, uh, little, it's where my 16 by 8 low Miyagi pond that is part of the duck feeding system that I put in this spring is now. And it is uh, incredibly shallow soils. Um, four inches, some places less. Uh, we did add some um, compost and topsoil to the area, though not broadcast. It was in specific, uh, like mounds to plant some trees that did not make it. They all died. And mostly we've done nothing to it. And when we first moved in, there was a few stray blades of grass and stuff and all, but the only thing that really grew there was bindweed. It's also directly downgrade from my duck holding area that goes, it's like on the front side of the duck house, where this area is right behind it. And now the ducks go to bed every night. We only have about 30 ducks. But at one time, of course, we had you know almost 200 animals. We had that for like four or five years. We were constantly bringing in wood chips to keep the area clean. And it created a mass nutrient flow. It wasn't really a biomass. It was just a nutrient flow because it's downgrade to the area in question. That area now is incredibly lush. I mean incredibly lush. And there is no bindweed anywhere except there's some that actually grows along the edge of the fence at one section and climbs up on the fence. But it doesn't spread into the field, and it doesn't spread into the pasture on either side of the fence. It sits there and does nothing except decorate the fence. That's kind of insane when you think about it. It's so invasive, but it's invading nothing. And this year, we've had more rain than we've had all except one year that we've been here. It should be going nuts if it is the evil demon that people think it is, but it's not. And in that case, it's really not even a lot of buildup of biomass. There's some, but it's mostly just high-quality nutrient. And so I would say trees and good grazing practices will likely, over time, fix almost any problem. But from my anecdotal evidence, because it's one place... Specifically, definitely, bindweed. No, it's a different climate and all, but just an observation. Next up, we have a uh, question on black mulberry for Nick Ferguson. Hey, everyone. This is Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com. And I've got another expert counsel question and an answer. Uh, let me just read off the question. This is from Steve. Uh, Nick Ferguson, what are the benefits of a black mulberry on your property? I hear you go on about fodder trees, poplar, willow, and white mulberries. White mulberries are not really zoned for my area, six, but I already have black mulberries growing on my property, and I'm looking to collect their berries and begin growing more of them. I have some chickens, and I'm hoping they'll eat the leaves and fruit as well. Thank you, Steve. 
All right. Well, the benefits of black mulberry are pretty similar to white and red as well as the hybrids. However, the black mulberry fruit is uh, sometimes a bit higher in sugar content, so it can be sweeter. Normally, it has a pretty good acid content, so... You know, it's got a, a nice uh, bite to it, which makes the fruit taste good. Uh, it's not as good of a fodder leaf because it's normally lower in protein and higher in fiber than white mulberry. But I think we need to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Common names often get thrown around, and that can cause a lot of confusion. So I just want to make sure we are both on the same page talking about the same thing. So black mulberry is relatively uncommon in the USA. So, unless you planted the trees and know for sure that they're Morris nigra, then the chances of it being a wild or just popped up from somewhere being an actual real black mulberry are pretty slim. It's far more likely you have, if this is like a wild mulberry that's just growing on your property that you didn't plant, that you bought specifically as a black mulberry, if it's just kind of growing there... Most likely, it's either a red mulberry or a white mulberry or a hybrid of the two. They all normally produce berries that are black when ripe. So just because it has a dark purple or black berry when it's ripe does not mean it is a black mulberry. They can all produce red mulberries when ripe, and they all produce white and red berries when immature. little side note... (laughs) The unripe white mulberries have been known to be hallucinogenic when eaten raw and unripe. There's also some toxicity issues with the unripe berries, so uh, I wouldn't go looking for a fun time by popping unripe berries. Just because the berries you have get black doesn't mean it's black mulberry. Next, we need to clear up an error. White mulberry, Morris alba, is hardy to USDA zones 4 to 11 on average it's got around 16.5 to 35% protein, the leaf. Black mulberry is Morris nigra, and the USDA zones that it is hardy to are 5A to 11, and on average, they're somewhere around 12 to 20% protein. Um, red mulberry, Morris rubra, is USDA zones 5 to 9, and on average, eh, in between 10-16% protein. Of course, these numbers change with the age of the leaf, what time of year it is, uh, the kind of nutrition that the tree is able to access. There are tons of things, but, I mean, there's sliding scales. So just to kind of go over those real quick again, white mulberry is Morris alba, black mulberry is Morris nigra, red mulberry is Morris rubra. Alba is white, Nigra is black, Rubra is red. White mulberry has the largest range. I mean, it grows from the equator up into Canada. Black mulberry does not grow as far, and red mulberry does not grow as far either direction as white mulberry. So you can definitely grow any of those three types of mulberry in Zone 6. They're all great. However, true black mulberry is actually likely to be more of an iffy tree depending on your winters. So if you're in a spot where it kind of gets a little colder and you're zone 6, but sometimes it dips down into zone 5, sometimes you can have black mulberry die in those colder winters. So if it's black mulberry, you might actually run into a problem with colder winters taking them out. So be careful about that. As for using the leaves of any of those types of trees, 
shred them, give them to your chickens. They'll happily eat the berries too. So yeah, have at it. By all means, use what you have. I always encourage people to use what they have. Research what tree leaves are safe for whatever livestock you're wanting to feed and identify what you have on your property. Always start with what you have. And then if you want to get some cool stuff that you know for a fact is you know, going to be white mulberry or whatever, you know positively that it's going to have the attributes that you're looking for, then yeah, sure, buy some. You don't have to buy them from me. Get them from whoever. But I would definitely get after it. Start developing those trees that are growing on your property to produce lots of trees. Sorry, not trees. To produce lots of leaves uh, by coppicing or pollarding them and save some money on your feed bills. I know it's kind of a short answer, but I figure short and to the point gets you more good info. I hope this answer helps both Steve and anybody else out there listening who might have wondered about the differences between these types of trees. And a real quick before I go, I just want to let you guys know that I am starting to book slots for my upcoming consulting tours. I've got one going through Central Texas. Possibly as far south as San Antonio, also going to be headed up to Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas. That'll probably be one circuit. And then another tour, maybe two. Uh, I know I'm probably going most likely all the way to the East Coast in Georgia. And then uh, that tour, I don't know exactly where I'm going to be going with that, but uh, might be up into the Tennessee area surrounding states. I might end up doing two circuits up through there throughout the summer so if you'd like to get more info on that or to secure a spot on the consulting tour shoot me an email with consulting in the subject line to nick at homegrownliberty.com and as always do good things i i actually think nick ferguson could write a book called things you don't know about mulberries and it would be a pretty thick book anyway uh and be accurate for most people that would read it the the guy is a mulberry king anyway with that let's uh do a lightning round uh we kind of did that already with sean mills let's do one with john pugliano and investing in tax questions hello tsp we have several financial questions let's see how many we can get weaved together before we get started i do want to give some clarification On 529 Education Savings Plans, this was a question that came up in last week's segment, and the clarification is, do you receive tax credits when you contribute to a 529 plan? Well, the answer can be complicated because while you don't receive a tax credit from the federal government when you contribute to a 529 plan, depending upon what state you reside in, you could receive a tax credit for that 529 contribution. There are about 30 states that do offer this type of discount. Last week's question came from someone that lived in the state of Missouri, and Missouri is one of those states that offers a 529 income tax credit. And remember what the government giveth, they taketh away, and so if you're taking a non-allowable 529 withdrawal that's not being used for education purposes, and you live in one of those states that gave you a tax credit when you made the contribution, well, then it's very likely that that state is going to want to claw back that 529 credit if the money is not being used for qualified education expenses. Remember, tax issues are very complicated. They not only apply at the federal level, but also state and other local jurisdictions. There's a lot to think about in process. That's why you always want to talk to a qualified professional to get the best answer for your particular situation. Now, speaking of particular situations, we have a question from Stephen in Michigan, 
and he's asking about emergency funds. And he says, do you recommend the amount and the nature of the cash being held in your emergency fund be reevaluated due to inflationary concerns? Well, to broadly answer your question, Stephen, absolutely. Remember, an emergency fund or the cash you're holding on hand to handle any kind of unexpected events or emergencies, that's not a static number. Dave Ramsey may talk about baby steps where you're initially putting away, you know, $500 or $1,000, but those are exactly what he calls them, baby steps. In the real world, when you're building financial resiliency, your emergency fund is designed to take care of the living expenses that you're going to occur over a particular period of time. And so if you're trying to first get established and get that first month put away, then you want to have all the expenses that would be related to your one-month living expenses. So, you know, that could be mortgage or rent, health insurance, food, clothing. I mean, all the type of living expenses that you would need for one month. And if inflation is causing those amounts to go up, then you'll have to save more for it. So your emergency fund is not a stagnant, arbitrary amount of money. It's the amount of money that you need to build the type of financial resiliency that you want to have. And that number can actually go down, too, as you build that financial resiliency. For example, if you pay off your mortgage and your mortgage had been $1,000 a month, well, once that mortgage is paid off, you no longer have that financial liability and you can deduct that $1,000 a month out of the overall money that you would be saving for your emergency fund living expenses. And speaking of paying off your mortgage, that takes us to a question from Mick in Pennsylvania, and he has enough cash on hand to pay off his mortgage. But at the same time, he also wants to do some additional home improvements, which are going to cost some money. And Mick has laid out a number of scenarios as to how he can either pay off the mortgage early or refinance or get a home equity line of credit to pay for the additions and improvements that he wants to make on his house. And Mick, you know what? I think you're just way overthinking this. The current interest rate you have on your mortgage is only three and a quarter percent. From the numbers you're giving me, it looks like you're talking about maybe $60,000. You don't have any specific investment plans for the $60,000. In the past, it was only earning you about $5 a month. So you weren't getting a good return on your money. Um, yeah, you can shop around and try and find the best and lowest fee home equity line of credits or look into refinancing. But I mean, given the amount of money you're talking about, and I think the overall small changes it makes one way or the other, whether you're looking at the interest deductibility on your taxes or how much you'll save by paying it off early. Listen, if it were me, just from a simplicity standpoint and keeping things simple, I would personally just keep the mortgage the way it is. Use the cash you have on hand to make your home improvements. And then since you mentioned you're in your early 50s, what I would encourage you to do is take a hard look at how you've set yourself up for retirement, which is you know only going to be 10 or 15 years down the road. Are you set up for that? And are you saving and investing properly to build yourself a retirement income stream? Personally, that's where I'd be putting my time and efforts, and I'd worry less about how to finance the home improvement. And from Nick's question, that ties in well to a question from Zachary. He's in his early 30s. He's recently sold some real estate. He's made a large gain on that sale. He doesn't need the money right away. And he wonders what's the best way of investing this money. Well, Zachary, since the proceeds of your profits are coming from a real estate deal, from a tax perspective, the best way to limit your capital gains taxes would probably be 
to keep that money involved in real estate investing, assuming that you're eligible for some type of a 1031 exchange. I don't know the specifics of this real estate transaction that you were involved in. You mentioned it was a partnership and it was commercial property. So I don't know to what degree the 1031 exchange would or wouldn't apply to your profits. But I think you should at least look into that because assuming that would work for you and assuming that you like real estate and you want to do another real estate deal, then you could take all of those profits, roll it into another property and not have a tax liability. So definitely look into the 1031 exchange rule, see if it applies to you and see if that's something you want to do. From a stock market investment, it sounds like you're a relatively new investor. You've only recently opened up a Roth IRA, and it sounds like that may be the only retirement plan you have uh, as you're also self-employed. So from an overall lifestyle perspective and looking at the long term, since you are a small business owner, I'd also encourage you to look into something called an individual 401k. They're sometimes known as a solo 401k. Depending upon how your business is set up, you may be able to contribute to this individual 401k. It would allow you to squirrel away a whole lot more money for long-term retirement than you would with just a regular Roth or a traditional IRA. And so you may want to take some of this windfall money that you have now and get that diverted into a tax-advantaged account as part of a long-term tax strategy. And then specifically as far as investing in the stock market, You're obviously not a sophisticated investor. I don't think you should be going out doing complicated things or even investing in individual stocks. Right now, if I were you, I'd start learning about index-based exchange-traded funds, something like SPY, which is an exchange-traded fund that's indexed to the S&P 500. That would be a good starting place for you to learn about how the stock market and how exchange-traded funds work. By investing in the S&P 500 index, you're getting broad diversification. And despite all the scary things you hear about the economy, I think investing in the S&P 500 over time is still an excellent opportunity for the average investor. Now, the S&P is right now sitting just below an all-time record high, so I wouldn't take all my money and throw it into that fund right away. I'd be waiting for some pullbacks. I'd be educating myself. I'd be looking for an opportunity to dollar cost average into it. But just to put this into perspective and show you how the compounding of growth in the S&P 500 can work for you. When I was your age, the S&P 500 was trading for about $450. Well, you fast forward 27 years later and the S&P 500 today is trading over $4,200. That's an increase of over 837%. So just by simply dollar cost averaging into the S&P 500 can substantially grow your retirement savings over the decades. And I think that potential still exists today. So as a young new investor, that's where I would start putting my investing savings. Well, hey, thanks for your questions. Till the next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. All right, good stuff from John, as always. I mean, you just... You're not even surprised when it's good with John at all anymore. Um, Quote of the day from Ben Franklin is what I want to talk to you about. And this is one of these quotes. People have heard different versions of it. Uh, Honestly, probably most of your life you've heard different versions and repackaging of this quote. I think it was originally published in Franklin's publication, Poor Richard's Almanac. Um, But it was, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. 
hey, you know, invest in yourself, right? And education is priceless. All those types of things. They're just repackaging of this concept. But this is probably the best way that it's ever been put that I'm aware of. An investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Pays the best interest. There's, there's, you know, you can invest in a thing and it's a store of value, but you can invest in a thing that produces income. That's what interest means. So if I buy gold and the price of gold over 10 years remains up, even if it goes up and down throughout the interim, if at the end of the term, the gold is about the same price as when I bought it, it paid low interest. It formed a good store of value. It formed a good place to safeguard value, but it did not produce interest. It did not produce me a gain. It did not give me an income. Okay? If I, if I buy gold and it goes up over 10 years, then the difference between when I bought it and when I sell it or trade it, that's the interest, even though we don't think of it as interest. And we need to look at everything we invest in this way to determine whether the time and the energy, the treasure put in, is worth it. Because if it's not, it could have gone somewhere else that paid a better interest, that paid a better dividend, gave us more of a return for what we've done. And so when we look at an investment in knowledge, well, what interest does that pay? And let's give you a very simple example of this. Um, I have a couple different ways something this simple, that I tie a fluorocarbon leader onto braided line when I'm fishing. And there's some very good ways that I know how to do this, but they're somewhat tedious and time-consuming, especially when you're sweating because it's you know 96 degrees with 85% humidity and a mosquito's eating the inside of your nose, and they seem to know exactly when to land on you when you're you know tying a double uni knot, for instance, right? Um, so I this weekend... I was like, I wonder if there's maybe a quick, easy, down-and-dirty way to do this where it's strong enough for like 90% of what I would do, and maybe if I was going out for cobia uh, on blue water, I would I would go back to a double unit knot, but for fishing and you know park ponds and all, it would be more than sufficient. So I found a particular knot. I don't even know what it's called, but it's really fast and it's really easy. And I had to to do it probably three times to where I got competent to where I can just do it now with almost out looking at it. it I had all in about a five-minute investment. Assuming I don't kick over tomorrow from a stroke or get hit by a car, I'll probably be fishing for 30 or 40 more years of my life. How many times will I use that piece of knowledge? What is its, what is its interest to me, even if it's not monetary? Every single time I do this for the rest of my life, It goes back to five minutes of learning. I might use it 10,000 times. I might use it even if a thousand times, a thousand to one ratio on return. Don't you wish all your financial returns worked out that way? And what happens when we make a commitment to ourselves to learn one new piece of useful knowledge a day, whether it's useful knowledge for philosophy, useful knowledge for future decision-making, useful knowledge for the ability to accomplish a skill, And we do that over our entire life, and each one of those items individually compounds. So we have to look at the individual compound effects. So what I gave you with the fishing knot that I just gave you, for instance, we can look at it as an individual compound effect. right? But now that I know that knot, there may be other riggings where it's highly beneficial that I know that knot, so it will get used there as well. But... 
fishing is a complete collective of skills and knowledge. So now you have to look at the combined compound effect of the knowledge. By knowing a thing well, you can judge other things and discard those which are no longer useful or make better use of ones you already know. And by combining two pieces of knowledge together, you can extrapolate a third result. And then if we take that again and we, we do this, you know, let's say we take a few days off a year, but about 300 days a year we commit that we will learn one new piece of knowledge. Over 10 years, that's 3,000 new pieces of knowledge that are useful. That's a key thing. And they have permutations and interactions that we cannot even understand. The, 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 remember when I talked about how the, the sequence of numbers and letters that make up a Bitcoin address, if every grain of sand on the planet was its own individual Earth, okay, and on that individual Earth we had the same, what, 8 billion people, each person could still get like a billion addresses and we wouldn't run out. It's insane that is. It's, it's, it's bigger than that. 3,000 individual pieces of information with multiple intersections creates a number that you can't even conceive of, and that's only 10 years of a life that averages over 80. And if you don't start doing this till you're 20, that's still, what, 60 years? And for some of us that live longer, more time to do this. And if we all did this, and more importantly, recognized it, then maybe we would put more value on our 70, 80, and 90-year-old people, realizing they've done this work for those 60, 70, 80, 90 years. Maybe we'd realize the best people to learn for are not from are not 30-year-olds who have a teaching degree, but 80-year-olds who have learned their entire life. Because what is their knowledge, interest, result? How many things do they, they have already learned, relearned, and unlearned, and learned there was a better way to do a thing before you even were born? And we can't change the world by making everybody do this, but we can see it ourselves this way. And when we do, our, our potential becomes pretty much unlimited because what is the potential of a person with 3,000 new useful pieces of knowledge over one decade alone of their life who actually is willing to use them and is willing to do what we talked about earlier in my segment with children for themselves to determine what they want, to provide themselves sufficient motivation to attempt to, uh, to achieve a thing and then use all those pieces of knowledge interconnected however is best to achieve a thing, and then have the open honesty to accept the willing consequences of failure as a correction to their direction, okay, so that they can then complete the agenda that they have set for themselves. And I would say their potential is only limited, only limited, by their actual desire. How much they really want the thing that they say that they want. That's why in the words of one famous songwriter, Kid Rock, said, and people get what they deserve. You can take that to mean that bad people get bad things. I take it a different way. And I think it's actually more in how it was meant. You deserve what you want. 
You just haven't done the work yet. And it's only you can do the work. Only you can make the investment in knowledge that will pay the interest that will be the dividend of success, however you define it. An investment in knowledge pays the best interest, Benjamin Franklin. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Song of the day, to, well, actually, you know what? I don't have an item of the day for you today from T-Spaz, but I do want to remind you, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's all I'll say about that today. Let's go on to our song of the day today. Song of the day today is Seminole Wind by John Anderson. And this is, of course, about the plight of the Seminole Indians in the Everglades. And it talks about how the Seminoles sought refuge in the swamps. They were one of the more successful holdouts as a tribe in continuing to live under their own terms of all tribes in our country. And partly it was because, well, they went into the swamps of the Everglades. Have you been there? And take yourself back to, you know, kind of the time in question, you know, mid, early 1800s. You've got other things to do other than go into the swamp. However, technology developed toward the end of the uh, 1800s into the early 1900s that allowed us to drain these swamps and see the incredible wealth that could be acquired in doing so and developing those areas for agriculture and for housing. And that really is what destroyed the last holdout of the Seminole Indians. But it destroyed more than them. See, when we destroy another, we destroy ourselves. We sometimes just don't realize it. This song really is about the damage done to the Everglades. And I believe the song was released in early 90s. I want to say around 92-ish. I, I know I was in the Army in Panama when this song came out because I remember uh, this song kind of being released uh, about that time, and that would have been the time frame. So I think 92 sounds about right. And at the time, there was some understanding of the damage that had been done to the, the ecosystem of the Everglades themselves. And... Um, John's record company was really iffy on releasing this song. They were okay with it going on the album, but they were like, I don't know if this is the single that we need to be releasing. Like, will anybody care about this song outside of Florida? And John pushed for it, and he believed that they would. And he actually played it for the first time in a concert live in Washington State, and it was a huge hit. And, of course, there's the romanticism of Native Americans in it, so that is something that plays well with, with, with a lot of people in our country, and should. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it's all that is what made the song a success, and there was truth in it. But the larger truth that we see today is the damage that damaging the Everglades has done on a larger scale that affects us all. If you go to South Florida right now, they are on the edge. It looks like they're going to have another disastrous red tide year in both the Gulf and the Atlantic sites, destroying millions upon millions of fish and costing the state billions upon billions of dollars. It is just now recovering from the horrible red tide of a few years ago. It's just now getting everything back under its feet. And here we go again. And it comes right down to what they did to the, to the big lake in the middle, Okeechobee, tying it directly into two rivers where it was never, the rivers never actually joined the lake before. We drained the swamp and then we connected the rivers to the lake and sitting to let the lake permeate through the swamp to the heads of the rivers. 
And what is that doing to us on an even larger scale? The whole of the Gulf of Mexico, the whole of the South Atlantic, the Caribbean. These things are not disconnected. They literally are connected. You can, If you're a fish, you can swim from the South Atlantic through the Caribbean to the Gulf. You can't massively kill billions of creatures every year that you get nothing from other than dead carcasses and not have a massive impact. We need to think broader. You guys know me. I don't believe in global environmentalism the way that it is taught today as a religion. And you have to ask yourself, why these people that supposedly care so much about the planet don't care about something like this that, honest to God, would be so easy to fix if there was only the will to do so. And the will to do so costs money now. But the the failure to do so doesn't just cost life long term. It costs more money long term than the investment necessary to fix it now. And we have the same problem a different way in the Mississippi River Delta, also in the Gulf of Mexico, because of the agricultural residue that runs into the Mississippi all the way up to the Canadian border and past. And this can be fixed too for rounding errors in the federal budget, but the will is not there to do it. So it is not just the plight of a tribe of Native Americans that this song really speaks to, even though I'm not sure Anderson understood it at the time that he wrote it. It affects us all. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Of our 
I see all the crime. 